As you do that, if you want to open up your Bible to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and following, we'll have it on the screen as well for you. Let me just begin by saying, I am so glad to see you. Um, I know I speak for the other elders at Mosaic when I say that you are a beloved people. When we think of you, um, we thank God for you. Paul says... uh, in many of his letters, I think particularly of his letter to Corinth, he says, I thank my God in every remembrance of you. Uh, and when we gather at elder meetings, one of the things that seasons our speech is gratitude for the people of Mosaic, for your perseverance, for your kindness, for your generosity, for your love and care for one another in hard times, and for your hope through the darkness. We love you, and I... Uh, I'm really excited to get to talk with you this morning. Every year I break away in the fall for a couple of weeks, and I I just spend some time praying. And I spend a lot of time over the summer praying. I was on sabbatical, and I begin to pray, Lord, what would you have for us, not just in the fall, but in the new year? Every year I come to the people of Mosaic with really a burden that I feel like the Lord has put on my heart, and we call it our resolution for the year. Uh, And that's the first Sunday of the year. We kind of talk about what is our resolution as a church family. I asked the Lord, really, what would you have us begin the year with? And we then, we we rewrite our benediction at the close of each service. We rewrite that benediction to reinforce it. There's a new benediction for this year. And we'll say it at the end of every service for the whole year. And that benediction is really kind of playing on the themes to work to reinforce in our heart, in our mind, in our hands every week what we feel like God has burdened our church for in a new year. And as I prayed and reflected this year, it did not take long at all for me to really begin to feel like the Lord was pulling me into something specific, to focus on our life together as a church family as we went into 2022. Our mission as a church is we exist to cultivate life in Christ, life together and life on mission. That's, that's why we exist as a church, is to cultivate life in Christ, that our lives would deep, be deeply rooted in the person work of Jesus Christ, and from that, that we would cultivate life together. That's fellowship. It's care. It's loving. It's serving one another. It's digging deep with each other, and that from the overflow of those two things, our life in Christ and our life together in fellowship, that that would flow into a life on mission, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And over the last two years, we have experienced significant disruptions to our life together. I think that's probably an understatement. I would say in the last two years that basically any social hub, any place of community, any place of friendship or family has experienced disruptions. It's experienced ruptures. And that is certainly true in our community and in our church. And I believe that over the last two years, what we have really seen is we have seen the soil cultivated, and that soil, well cultivated as it is, our overwhelming awareness of our need for one another in life together can either be a place where the good things grow, or it could be a place where some very bad things grow. And truthfully, I believe that the great enemy, Satan, is at our door looking to devour and divide us. And we live in a culture where it is tempting to succumb to this attack. And our hearts still carry the brokenness of sin in a way that makes us susceptible to the evil of division, 
bitterness, malice, envy, covetousness, and immorality. So I wanted us to look at a passage today, and this will really be kind of an anchor passage for us this year, and that passage is one that you're very familiar with, but I hope it's one today that we can uncover a little bit more on. Our resolution as a church for 2022 is this, to be a people marked by the fruit of the Spirit, to be a people marked by the fruit of the Spirit, a people who practice love in a world of hate, who embody peace in a world of anger, who embrace joy in a world of apathy, who cultivate patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, even when it's costly. Even when it's costly. And it is almost always costly to cultivate these things. Let me read Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26, and then I'll say this is the word of the Lord. You're invited to respond and to say thanks be to God. The reason we do that is that God hasn't left his people in silence. He's spoken. We want to give thanks for that. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, there is so much I want to say in so little time today, and so what I'll be doing is in March, I'll return to this passage, and we'll dig a little bit deeper. And in July, I'll return to this passage and dig a little bit deeper. But I wanted to take just a moment today at the beginning of our year to talk about something that I think is incredibly significant. We, you and I, as Christians, are locked into a daily battle. Every single day, we wake up into a battle, and that battle is between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. Paul's going to say this elsewhere in Romans 7, which we'll also get to this spring. He's going to say, I delight in the law of God in my innermost being, but I see another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Every day, we wake up, we wake up into a battle, a battle between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. And for the Christian, you might go, well, why are the desires of the flesh even still appealing to me? That's a good question. It's a good question because we might think, well, listen, doesn't Paul say we've crucified the flesh and all its passions? I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. So where do the desires of the flesh still come from? Well, there's really three places. There are three things that every day we have to wake up aware of. And I think increasingly so for some reasons I'll get to in a moment. We have to wake up aware of the battle of the desires of the flesh. One, because of our indwelling sin. We still have remnants of sin in our life. 
pieces of brokenness. God is remodeling and renewing and restoring, but there are still pieces of our heart and mind that are broken. If you don't believe that about yourself, ask someone who knows you, and they'll put their finger right on it. They'll go, that's it. That's a part of the brokenness that's still there. All of us still carry with us our brokenness. It's still there. God is remaking it and renewing it, but there are elements of each of us that are still broken. They're out of whack. They're out of sorts. And because of that, we can find ourselves inclined to the desires of the flesh. But there are two other reasons, and these are more external. The first of those is the temptations of the world we live in. And let me tell you something. The world that you and I live in is incredibly tempting. It's incredibly tempting. We live in a world that is full of ever-present temptations and that has more of your attention than it has ever had. The juggernauts of our economy are built on a resource. You know what that resource is? Your attention, your imagination. It's never been easier than it is right now to find our attention pulled into a million little things, all of which are trivial. There are temptations that exist outside of us. And there is the work of a great enemy. Now, I know it can seem so antiquated to talk about Satan. I know it can feel old. I know that maybe it feels like kind of, I don't know, weird to our modern sensibilities. But the world that you and I live in is the biblical world. This is God's world, and in God's world, there is a great enemy, an enemy who has been defeated and whose final defeat is coming, but an enemy who still seeks to kill, deal, uh, kill, destroy, and devour God's people and what God has called his people to, the work of Satan. We aren't just tempted by our own flawed desires. There is a real adversary. Many times in the last two years, I've encountered people who will say, I'm eating well. I'm sleeping well. I'm taking care of myself. Pastor, I'm praying. I'm reading the Bible. And yet I feel locked into a pit of despair that I cannot get out of. And they'll say, what am I doing wrong? And I'll say, it doesn't sound like you're doing anything wrong. Is it possible that there is a great enemy who is opposed to the growth of godliness in your life? Because the Bible is saying, yes, there is a very real possibility that that is what has happened and that is what is happening. The desires of the flesh abound in us because of the inner brokenness that we still carry, the temptations of the world, and the attack of the enemy. And what do they lead to? Well, they lead to all manner of unrighteousness and wickedness. And in March, I'll actually come back and roll through this list and talk about it. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's a pretty like broad list. Without going into detail because of the little hearts and ears in our room today, we'll come back in March and we'll dive into the details. But just reading that list, you know those words, and that's a broad list. That's a broad list. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying this. There are many places that the desires of the flesh can grow, and there are many places that the desires of the flesh can go. It doesn't always look the same. 
There are in our lives respectable sins. I bet there are things on this list that you could look at right now and be like, yeah, I wouldn't mind confessing that in an accountability group. There are others that you'd think, I'd probably think twice about saying that one out loud, you know? In the eyes of God, they are all the same, but for us, we can divide up the brokenness in our lives and be like, that stuff is kind of tolerable. It's respectable. It's okay. It's not as dangerous. And yet Paul is saying the desires of the flesh can grow where we don't think they can grow, and they can go where we don't think they can go. And every day we wake up into a battle for our hearts and minds on whether or not we will give in to the desires of the flesh or that we will grow in the desires of the Spirit. And I have to tell you, you may look at this list here, and there may be things on this list that you think, well, those aren't around here. Not in Richardson, not in Greenwood Hills, not in Duck Creek, not in Burtner Park, not in Heights Park. Man, not in my, it couldn't, these things couldn't possibly be in my neighborhood sorcery, right? You might think, oh no, I, I don't think I've seen that in town. I'll tell you, as somebody who gives the full of their attention to looking at our city, I can see all of these in our community, every single one of them creeping at the edges of our doors, creeping at the edges of our church community. I see them on the outskirts trying to break in, trying to establish strongholds in the life of our church. And if we are not careful, we will fall into temptation. Because of the temptations of the world and the attack of the enemy, let me tell you something, nobody drifts towards holiness. Nobody drifts towards holiness. The undercurrent of the world is not pulling you out further into the sea of God's grace in Jesus. It's pulling you further out into a sea of confusion and darkness. I know it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not. A better kingdom is coming. It is. But right now, we live between the already and the not yet. And because of that, no one drifts towards holiness. It has to be the concerted effort of a grace wrought work in our life where we say, God, we need you We need you to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. We need you to give to us the growing desires of the Spirit so that we might move further up and further in to the life of your people, to the life of fellowship with God. We must be watchful as a church family about this battle between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. There is a pressure, and I know that you feel it because we talk about it. There is a pressure to be conformed to the world. There is. There is a pressure to indulge the desires of the flesh. And in the midst of those pressures, there is the attacks of the enemy that are real, that are persistent, and that are intensifying. And I am increasingly convinced that the desires of the flesh flourish in three areas. Three areas. And if you're taking notes, if you're a note taker, write these down. Because I want you to ask yourself after the service today, are one of these areas pronounced in my life in this season? Because I have become, as a pastor, for the last 13 years, I have become increasingly convinced that the desires of the flesh, they flourish in these three spaces. And I want you to ask yourself, huh, have those spaces had room to flourish in the last two years? The first, exhaustion. Exhaustion. Do you know why desires of the flesh flourish when you're exhausted? Because you're too overwhelmed to move towards what is best. Anybody ever feel that? Too overwhelmed to fight for what's good, 
to fight for what's meaningful, to fight for what's substantive. When you're exhausted, let me tell you something. It becomes very easy to settle. Ask the McDonald's drive through person right here off Campbell when their peak hours are. It's late at night. People are tired. They're exhausted. There's a reason these establishments stay open 24 hours a day because you're exhausted. You're weary. And what's a safe bet? Let me just run through. It doesn't mean it's good for you, but it means it's available. You're too exhausted. You're exhausted. It's too overwhelmed to fight for what's good and meaningful. The second one, isolation. Isolation. Desires of the flesh grow in isolation. You know why? Because you can't fight them on your own. The Bible is clear. If you're trying to live an isolated Christian life, it is going to be met with failure. It's going to be met with failure. You were meant to live life together with brothers and sisters in Christ. You need one another. We need one another. Isolation. We can't do it alone. And the third, digital gluttony. We've had a new gluttony emerge in the digital age. Many of us were maybe in churches that grew up. We heard about gluttony. We heard about drunkenness, the overconsumption of material goods. We even heard about consumerism. Be careful that you don't buy too much. These are, these, are, these are serious warnings, and they're legitimate warnings that we should be mindful of. But there is a kind of gluttony that has kind of slid in slowly as we acclimated, as we kind of became more and more digital natives. It just felt more and more normal. And all of a sudden, we have found ourselves in the midst of a digital gluttony that is unparalleled, an overconsumption of the trivial, a giving away of our attention to lesser things. And there's a whole economy built up around this. So you're not just fighting your own desires. You're not only fighting the new chemical pathways that have developed in your brain. You are fighting an economy now that is engineered for you to be a shallow person, to think shallow thoughts, to be non-substantive in your consideration. We cannot be prepared to do battle against the desires of the flesh if we try to do it exhausted, alone, and full of trivial things. It just won't work. The desires of the flesh abound in those areas. But listen, it's not just the desires of the flesh that Christians have. You are not just resigned and paralyzed by the desires of the flesh. God has given his people the desires of the spirit. And they might be an ember in your life right now. Let's be honest about it. The desires of the spirit might be an ember in your life. It may not feel like a bonfire in your soul. Let me be just truthful with you. It doesn't feel like a bonfire in my soul right now. That's not how I'm starting off the year. So if you feel like, man, I just got like a flickering match right now that is the desire of the spirit. Guess what? You're in good company because I bet many of us feel the same way. And yet the spirit of God begins to kindle that, breathing life into it, empowering it to where it grows in its intensity. It grows in its depth. And how does the spirit of God do this? The fruit of the spirit, the desires of the spirit are produced in our life by God's grace. They're produced in our life by God's grace. And they are cultivated by obedience and worship. I can't give you the desires of the Spirit. You can't conjure them up. You can't work your way into the desires of the Spirit. Only God can. But once he has granted them to you, you can cultivate them. You can cultivate them. You can bring them back to God and say, God, in prayer, God in worship, God in obedience, you are going to have to strengthen these things because they're too weak right now. 
You're going to have to strengthen these things. You're going to have to breathe life into the desires of the Holy Spirit. The working out of our resolution to be a people marked by the fruit of the Spirit, a people who practice love in a world of hate, who embody peace in a world of anger, who embrace joy in a world of apathy, who cultivate patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, even when it's costly, it's going to involve two things. You ready for them? It's going to involve uprooting, and it's going to involve replanting. You want to grow the desires of the Spirit in your life? It's going to require uprooting, and it's going to require replanting. Working to uproot the desires of the flesh. Working to uproot the way of the world, the snares of the enemy, and to replant the desires of the Holy Spirit. And it can only be done by dependency on the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's the only way the work can be done is in prayer. That's the only way the work can be done is needy for grace, dependent on God's power and might and majesty. But there are ways that God invites us into this work. And let me give you one that I want to just, I want to challenge us as a church family this year. When we think about the work of uprooting and replanting, let me give you a practical step on how we can practice this together. A way that will produce the benefits of God's grace and growth in our life. Praying for each other. Praying for each other. How often do you get a text message or a phone call with a need, a fear, a concern, an anxiety, a desire, a hope? How often do you get that, that call for prayer, and just let it lay? It's almost become kind of a Christian social custom to say, I'll pray for you, right? But it's so easy for us to just walk out into a world of busyness and inattentiveness and forget all about it, isn't it? What if we became a people who when somebody put their heart out on the line, when somebody said, this is what's going on in my life, this is a need I have, here's a fear I hold, I'm exhausted, I'm hoping for this, I'm praying for this, I want to give thanks for this. What if we became a people who said, you know what, let's stop and let's do that right now. Let's thank God. Let's pray that God will meet us here. Let's pray that God will bring healing here. Let's pray that God will bring freedom in this place. That is a practical, simple step for us to say, you know what, it would be very easy for us to just walk away from this, to distract ourselves from this, to delay it. But instead, what if we just came as a people and said, no, let's pray. Let's bring this before the God who can right now. Let's ask him. Let's ask in his name. Let's give thanks for what he has done. Let's celebrate who he is in this moment right now. To be a people who don't just say, hey, thanks for sharing that with me. But saying, thank you for telling me. Can we pray right now? What if we gave that to one another as a gift? Do you know what I think we would find? I think we would find greater access to a peace that surpasses all understanding. Not because we're doing the right thing, but because in Philippians 4, Paul is going to say, give thanks to God in everything, and you will be met with the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. There is so much more that I want to say about this, and we're going to come back to it in March and July, but I want to end here with this for us. I think there are three temptations and three opportunities for us in this moment, going into this year. I think there are three temptations facing us right now and three opportunities that we have. The first temptation, a culture of reactivity. You and I have found out that in the last two years, we live in a culture of hyper-reactivity. It is very hard to practice the fruit of the Spirit if you are reacting. 
Now, let me tell you the difference between reaction and response. Reaction is being quick to speak, slow to listen, certain about everything, curious about nothing. That's reaction. Quick to speak, slow to listen, certain about everything, curious about nothing. That's what it means to be reacting. We live in a culture of hyper-reactivity. I heard it. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say what I feel about it. I don't really know what's going on here. I'm not really sure what's happening. But boom, I'm going to jump right into it. Right? That's reaction. Response is different. A spiritual response that showcases the fruit of the Spirit, it's slow to speak. It's quick to listen. It's certain about certain things and curious about everything else. That's the difference between response and reaction. To be a people who practice the fruit of the Spirit will mean to say no to a culture of hyper-reactivity and yes to faithful response. No, we don't want anything to do with that. We don't want to be a people in a culture of hyper-reactivity We want to practice faithful response marked by gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. There is a second temptation. Not just a culture of reactivity, but a culture of apathy. A culture of apathy. A culture of apathy where we feel paralyzed to do anything good. Paralyzed towards having any meaning at all. A culture of apathy. And I think the main difference here in our culture of apathy is the difference between urgency and fervency. The difference between urgency and fervency. We live in a very urgent culture, but we don't live in a very fervent culture. An urgent culture is one that is preoccupied being busy with superficial things. That's an urgent culture. It's preoccupied being busy with superficial things. It's on to the next thing, 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 never diving deep, always staying on top. That's a culture of urgency, being preoccupied always with superficial things, being busy with superficial things. But God is inviting us into a culture of fervency. Now, let me dispel a myth here. A culture of fervency isn't you not being busy. Let me me spoil it for you. You are going to be busy. Can I get an amen? You're going to be busy. The question is, what are you going to be busy with? Because a culture of urgency is busy with superficial things, but a culture of fervency is busy with formational things. It's busy with things that shape us, that shape us into what is good, that shape us into what is true, that shape us into what is beautiful. I don't want you to be less busy. I really don't. I want you to be more busy with formational things and less busy with superficial things. I want your attention to be more preoccupied Not less. I just want it going to the right place. I want my attention going to the right place, to the things of the Lord, to the things of our families and the things of this church family. A culture of reactivity, a culture of apathy, and lastly, a culture of immorality. We live in a culture of immorality. And let me tell you something, that's not unique. Every civilization in human history has been a culture of immorality. And it always looks differently. But we, yes we, live in a culture of immorality. And there is a temptation, and the temptation is between conformity and contextualization. There is a temptation to be conformed to the world. You know what conformity is? Conformity is when we allow our witness to be compromised by where and when we live. We allow our our witness to be compromised by where and when we live. When we allow ourselves to be formed by the best and the worst of our neighborhoods as opposed to shaping the best and the worst of our neighborhoods. Conformity is allowing our witness to be shaped 
to be compromised by where and when we live. Contextualization is allowing our witness to be shaped by where and when we live. By helping us to speak the language, by helping us to be able to speak to our people to know where and when we live without being subject to its control. These are three temptations that we have to practice the desires of the Spirit, to be a people marked by the fruit of the Spirit. But there are three opportunities. We can cultivate holiness. We can cultivate holiness and become a contrast community. Let me go ahead and tell you something. You, if you're going to live in the way of Jesus from this point forward, you are never going to align with this culture. Never. You are forever an alien. I know that Texas has been comfortable for us. Go talk to our brothers and sisters in the Northeast and the Northwest. They will tell you what is already at our doorsteps, which it is no longer going to be aligned with the cultural spirit of our age. That time is done. If you are going to walk in the way of Jesus, if you are going to be marked by the fruit of the Spirit, let me welcome you right now into the fellowship of aliens and strangers. You've been a part of it your whole life in Christ, but it is about to get very real for us. There will be no more comfortable following in the cruciform way of Jesus. It's gone. The time is over. I'm not here to scare you. I promise I'm not. I'm being truthful with you. That time is done. We are now in a time in which walking in the way of the Jesus, walking in the way of Christ, will make you look different. It will be unavoidable. Cultivating holiness is an opportunity we have, and when we do so, we can be a contrast community. Cultivating humility means we can be a persuasive community. We can be a persuasive church family because people will look at a group of people and say, wow, they're not arrogant jerks. That's so odd. That's so odd. Humility is becoming a kind of, I mean, who would have thunk it? But in a loud age, the quiet humility of a group of faithful and loving people is a countercultural witness that is persuasive. It's persuasive. And we can cultivate health by pursuing love and joy. We have the opportunity to be a content community. A community that is saying, you know what? I have found the best that I will ever find in Christ and I will be satisfied in him. I will be satisfied in him. A movement can happen if a contrast community becomes persuasive in the way they showcase satisfaction and joy in Jesus in the midst of a world of apathy, of indifference, of immorality, of exhaustion from living urgent lives. This is what God has invited us into as a church family this year. It's what he's inviting us into, and it's why our resolution is shaped this way, to be a people who are marked by the fruit of the Spirit, even when it's costly. It's what God is inviting us into this year. It's what we will keep in front of you in our benediction every week. It's what we will return to throughout the year. And let me tell you something. It is my hope and my heart for the people of Mosaic that we will become a people of which so much can be said, but at a baseline that people will say, these are people who are patient. These are people who are kind. These are people who are good. These are people who love. These are a joyful people. These are people who practice faithfulness and self-control. Wouldn't it be said of us at the end of this year that we have increased in the fruit of the Spirit? Please, God, let your grace be the road that we walk and empower us by the work of the Holy Spirit. Father, we come to you 
We ask your blessing over us as a church family, that we would be a people marked by the fruit of the Spirit. We know that it will be alien. We know that it will be strange. We know that it will be countercultural and costly. And yet it is the way of Jesus. But we confess we cannot do it on our own. The desires of the flesh are too strong. The temptations are too strong. We need your work. We need protection against the snares of the enemy. And we ask you, Father, that you would bless us in the name of Christ and with the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might walk in your ways, that we might grow in the fruit of the Spirit, and that we might go from this place as a people committed to that work. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Would you stand with us as we receive the Lord's Supper together?